Let me invite you to take your Bibles this morning and turn with me to Philippians chapter 2. We'll be looking this morning at Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 to 11. We are putting our study through Exodus on hold for the next uh, few weeks. I know you want to get to those ninth and 10th commandments and beyond. You're just going to have to wait as we are going to look at what I am going to call, for lack of a better title, the Songs of Christ. We're going to be looking through this Advent Uh, time at some New Testament passages that are summations of the work of Christ. They have a a certain poetic quality to them. Many scholars think they are hymns or poems or parts of early Christological creeds that writers uh, have uh, taken and included into their um, letters or um, into their, uh, later we'll see, and clearly in the book of Revelation uh, as well. So, anyhow, we're going to be looking at this in this passage in Philippians chapter 2, The Apostle Paul is writing, beginning in verse 5. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, Being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Amen. Thus far, the reading of God's holy word. Let's go to God in prayer. Our Father, how we thank you for our Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you that indeed he humbled himself and became obedient even to death on a cross. So, O God, we pray that even as Christ has been exalted, may he be exalted in our midst this morning. And it's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. Christmas for Christians is all about God becoming man to save his people from their sins. That's what we recognize this time of year. The incarnation, God becoming man. 
Theologians refer to the incarnation as being part of Christ's humiliation, his humiliation, his birth in a low estate, leading ultimately to hardships, to rejection, and to death on a cross. And there are memorable ways that we sing of this during the Christmas season. Stooping so low, but sinners raising. Or this line, low within a manger lies he who built the starry skies. Or mild he lays his glory by. Or this, leaving riches without number, born within a cattle stall, etc., etc., etc. That's what we celebrate this Christmas season. This passage here in Philippians chapter 2 is one of the great summations of the life and ministry of Jesus Christ, the person and work of Jesus Christ. And there is great debate among biblical scholars about whether Paul wrote it or whether he has used an existing song or creed and put it here in his letter. Uh, One biblical scholar, Alec Motier, refers to it as a poem. Uh, The great uh, New Testament uh, scholar Moses uh, Silva, Silva calls it a hymn. Uh, as he describes it, with striking parallelism of two stanzas with four lines each. And indeed, uh, some uh, translations of the New Testament, the ESV does not have it, lay it out in exactly uh, that way. Perhaps Paul wrote it himself. Perhaps he used an existing work. This has absolutely zero impact on its inspiration or authority, or importance, or of its encouragement uh, for us. In context, it brings great encouragement and exhortation. So we come to this song, if you want to call it that. It is broken down basically into two parts. The humiliation and the exaltation of Jesus Christ. The humiliation and the exaltation in Jesus Christ. So let's look first of all at the humiliation of Christ. We see this in verses 6 through 8. It begins with these words in verse 6. Who, though he was in the form of God, will We're going to go basically phrase by phrase as we look at this this morning. Who, though he was in the form of God. This word form, the word translated form, this noun is only used here in the New Testament. The verbal form is used uh, a few times. It's used 
especially actually in Galatians 4.19, when the Apostle Paul says that he is in the anguish of childbirth to the Galatians until Christ is formed in you. Now, one um, dictionary, or what we call Greek lexicon, translates this noun, the, the nature or character of something with emphasis upon both the internal and external form. The nature or character of something with emphasis upon both the internal and external form. In other words, in plain English, it does not mean he only appeared to be God. It means he really was and is God. He was in the form of God. He really was and is God. Just as we see in verse 7, that he took the form of a servant. He really became a servant. He really became man. He took a human nature. The word form is found there as well. And this is confirmed by the next line that we see here in verse 6. He did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. He was in the form of God. He did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. To be equal with God, he, of course must be God. He must be God. And he did not count that a thing to be grasped. In other words, he did not hold on to it for his own advantage. Christ refused to act selfishly, is the point here. He refused to act selfishly. How often does our failure to serve come down to our desire to hold on to something we don't want to give up? We don't want to give up. Time, money, leisure, the thought that I'm above that sort of thing, or even I might embarrass myself. Christ did not hold on to what he, what he, what he had. But verse 7 goes on to say, he emptied himself. He emptied himself. Your translation might read, even if you have an older ESV translation, your translation might might read, he made himself nothing. The the Greek word literally means he emptied himself. But your translation might read, he made himself nothing. He, He made himself of no reputation. The Greek word... Uh, it's actually, I'll, I'll give you the, the Greek word kanao because you may be familiar, you may not be. 
familiar with an early church heresy called the kenosis heresy. Kenosis heresy. It was a debate over what Jesus emptied himself of. Did Jesus empty himself of something? Did he empty himself of his omniscience, his omnipotence, his omnipresence? What's Paul saying here? He emptied himself. What does that mean? Did he empty himself of his deity when he came to earth? But in other uses of the New Testament, this word he emptied himself or made himself of no account really means he nullified himself. He made himself of no account. He became a lowly human being. A lowly human being. In fact, look at the next line here in the text. He taking the form of a servant, taking the form of a servant being born in the likeness of man. This is, in other words, subtraction by addition. He emptied himself by taking subtraction by addition. Sinclair Ferguson puts it, Christ emptied himself not by subtraction of divine attributes, but by the assumption of human nature. That's what the incarnation is all about. He sacrificed. He emptied himself by taking on human nature. But not just human nature, as it goes on to say here, taking the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men. He took on human nature to serve. That's why Christ came to earth, to serve, to serve. The suffering servant despised Rejected, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. As Jesus himself said, the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And this is exactly what we see in verse 8, being found In human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Even death on a cross. Humbled himself. As the hymn writer puts it, "'Tis mystery all the immortal dies.'" He was obedient, obedient to the Father's will, obedient to the mission that God set for him to accomplish. 
He prayed in the garden with drops of sweat, like blood. Father, remove this cup from me, yet not my will, but your will be done. And that cup, as many of you know so well, that cup is the cup the Old Testament describes as the outpouring of the wrath of God. Remove this cup of your wrath, Father, from me. But Christ would drink it, fully drink it, as no one else would. Taking on the, the wrath of his beloved Father, being separated from the Father with whom he had only known love. God poured out his wrath on his own beloved Son. He went to the cross to die for the sins of his own people at the hands, yes, of men, but at the hands of his own loving Father. As Martin Luther could say, God was never more pleased with his son than when he was most angry with him. Even death on the cross, Paul says, to the point of death, even death on the cross at the end of verse 8, Moses Silver writes, no doubt, He adds these words at the end here, even death on the cross, to emphasize the extent and depth of Christ's humiliation because death by crucifixion was considered by Romans the most degrading penalty. And that's what Christ took for us. Amazing. All for us, for our sin. And for our salvation. Sinclair Ferguson describes this as Adam in reverse. Adam in reverse. Christ did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped. But Adam grasped after equality with God. The promise was you will be like God. Christ is a servant. Adam refused to serve God. Christ was obedient. And yet we see Paul in Romans chapter 5 contrasting Adam's disobedience with Christ's obedience. Christ said, not my will, but your will be done. Through Adam came death. Through Christ has come life. The story doesn't end there. It doesn't end there. We go on to verse 9 and following. We see the exaltation of the Lord Jesus Christ in verses 9 through 11. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory 
of God the Father. Every knee bow, every tongue confess. Who? Every knee, every tongue. Who does that mean? Us, Christians, it means everyone. All, saved and unsaved. Some to be with Christ forever. Some to suffer eternal punishment forever. We see here the absolute sovereign rule of Christ. He is the ruler of the universe. Every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, Master, the ruler of the universe. As Christ himself said in Matthew chapter 28, all authority in heaven on earth, heaven and earth has been given to me. The writer to the Hebrews says in Hebrews chapter 2, you made him For a little while lower than the angels, you have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him, but we see him, Jesus This statement in Hebrews chapter 2, at at present we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. Perhaps we can say that that is quite an understatement. But we see Jesus. He is sovereign. He is still ruling over all. He is working out his perfect purposes for his people, for his church. He is working them out in the universe and he is simply calling us to be faithful because he is the sovereign Lord. As I was preparing this, I was reminded of the Abraham Kuyper line, there is not one square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine. It's all his. It's all his. Christ's humiliation, his coming to earth, his exaltation. Brothers and sisters have literally changed the world. They've changed the world. The kingdom of God has broken in to this age, to this world. The age to come has entered in to the present age. That's a fact. God is at work. We may not see it. We may get discouraged. But God is at work. And there is also an exhortation here. I passed over it. An exhortation for us that we are to take from this in verse 5. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. In other words, have the mind of Christ. Have the mind of Christ. Serve as Christ 
served with Christ-like humility. It's a call to live in sacrificial service for Christ himself. In 1662, it took place what was called the what is called the Great Ejection was when Puritan pastors in England were removed from their pulpits for their refusal to strictly adhere to the Book of Common Prayer. And they were expelled, and, but soon after that, plague, a severe plague came to London and many Anglican pastors left. But many of those same Puritan pastors that had been expelled from their churches in London, they returned to London to minister to the sick. As a result, many, many came to saving faith in Jesus Christ. Rejected, but servants' hearts laying down their lives as Christ did. This is the mind of Christ. Selfless service like Christ who taught, who healed the sick, who even washed the disciples' dirty, stinky feet. Who said to his disciples, the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. We are to have the mind of Christ. That's what this passage is about. We are to have the mind of Christ. And one important way that helps us to have this mind of Christ is not only God's word, but also the sacrament and the observance of the Lord's Supper. So I'm going to transition into that now. The humiliation of God becoming man, even to death of the cross, is what this Lord's Supper is all about. The cross and its humiliation and its degradation, as the hymn puts it, stooping so low, but sinners raising. It is significant, brothers and sisters, that we are to have the mind of Christ because we are responsible for his death. We are responsible for his death. As the hymn puts it, it was my sin, my sin, that held him there. The Apostle Paul said, Christ loved me and gave himself for me. Read recently a quote by Greenville Presbyterian Seminary Professor Ryan McGraw, 
And actually many were responsible for the death of Christ. We killed Jesus through our sins. Satan killed him out of hatred. God killed him in place of his people, Isaiah 53. And Jesus laid down his life as an offering for sin for our sakes. And this supper this morning is for those who recognize that they are sinners. They are sinners who sent Christ to the cross. They are sinners who need a Savior. More than that, this supper is for those who have trusted Christ for salvation. Trusted in Christ for their salvation, who are members of an evangelical church. Parents, if your children have not yet made their public profession of faith, even though they may have privately accepted Jesus, professed faith in Christ, uh, we encourage you not to let them partake until they have met with elders and publicly professed faith in Jesus Christ. But for all who are trusting in Christ and who are members of his church, this supper that we're about to eat from is for you. Let's pray. Our Lord God, how we thank you and praise you for our Lord Jesus Christ, who humbled himself, who became obedient even to death on the cross, even to taking on our sins, even to taking on your wrath. And so, O oh God, we pray this morning that you would humble us as we prepare to take of this supper. We also ask, O God, that you would draw us close to yourself, that you would strengthen us by it, that you would give us greater love for our Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.